there. Welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. On this podcast, we go in depth with leading experts from all walks of life to understand and improve your health and well being. Today, I'm talking with Carrie Ananaya about how your gut microbiome affects your hormones like estrogen. Carrie is a board certified physician's assistant who owns Nebraska Functional Medicine. She is training by both the Institute for Functional Medicine and the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine. She's the Assistant Director of Clinical Education at the supplement company Biocidin, whose toothpaste I love, and frequently lectures on the topic of functional medicine and gut health. It was an absolute pleasure talking with her today as understanding how the health of your entire digestive system relates to the health of your hormones and more is so crucial to your overall well-being. Here's a clip from today's conversation. So it starts to drive that down and 80%, again, an estimate is 80% of our serotonin is converted in the gut. So serotonin is that feel-good kind of happy neurotransmitter. And, you know, our brain sends signals to the gut. I think a lot of people think our brain has this almighty power, but really brain sends signals to the gut, but our gut sends 10 times the signals to the brain. And so you're seeing there that if you're, you've constantly got all these either little fires or one major fire that's creating this inflammatory response in the microbiome, how in the world are we going to expect serotonin to do its little magical enzyme reaction to activate it and get sent to the brain and be like, I'm going to feel good amongst this craziness. It doesn't, it fits generally feel good when you have all that craziness going on. It's harder to feel positive. It's harder to stay optimistic and it's easy to get really down, but it all makes sense. It's all directly related. That's just a small taste of the amazing show that we have for you today. Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that of course is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. And if you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you are placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. And Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 25 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. So if you are a practitioner, Make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Well, Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for asking me. Absolutely. Well, I can't wait to have the conversation of the Carries all about (laughs) the microbiome and, of course, my favorite subject, the astrobilome. Yes. (laughs) The fun word to say. (laughs) The fun word to say in science right now. Absolutely. So, well, before we get started, why don't you give everybody a little bit of background about you, who you are, what you do, and what you stand for? Great. Yeah. So, I'm Carrie, as she said. I'm a PA by training. I started out in dermatology and found my way to functional medicine, like all of us, I think, kind of our own journey and our own health, and knew that I just wasn't doing things, something wasn't right. So, there had to be another way. And I had had some other health things. So I had a great functional medicine MD that just was kind of a mentor and guided me this direction. But so I now have my own practice in Nebraska where it's cold a lot of the time right now. (laughs) And I also work part-time or a little bit of the time for Biocidin as part of their clinical education team. So speaking at conferences and talking about the gut. So which I love. And not at this table that I'm sitting at, I don't have my Biocidin throat spray, but 
in my normal desk, I have my Biocide and Throat Spray and I use yeah. my Biocide and Toothpaste. So yeah, that's my favorite too. Not that this is necessarily a Biocide and plug, but I do use their products. Yes. <laughs> I actually had a dentist appointment yesterday and they're like, we don't really need to do anything. I was like, thanks, Biocide and Toothpaste. <laughs> yep. That yeah. stuff works. I know. And the oral rinse, yes, I have that yes. too. So <laughs> we're good. All right. Well, actually speaking of the oral cavity, let, we're talking yeah. about digestion. We're talking about the microbiome. We're talking about hormones, but I want to start with the basics. So everybody's kind of on the same playing field. Can you explain like the different parts of digestion, like starting mm-hmm. with your mouth and teeth, literally all the way out? So yeah. I think everyone just thinks digestion is stomach, right? but really there's multi parts to it. And you think about it, one of the, a professor told me this once, they're like, from, you know, mouth to all the way out is actually external of your body, but it's like, so internal, right? Isn't that a weird, like yes. kind of a funky thought, huh. but it is, it's really external and it, it's going to fit with kind of everything we talk about today. But so yes, yeah, starts with the mouth. So salivary glands, you know, we produce saliva in preparation for eating and chewing. And then our teeth have to chew the food and then it goes to our stomach. We ultimately would have appropriate stomach acid levels that would break our food down. It then moves into the small intestine where the gallbladder and pancreas secrete their bile and, and enzymes to do their thing. And then it moves through the small intestine where it continues to get broken down, theoretically. And then it gets to the large intestine and that's where things should nicely be absorbed and eliminated or things maybe not absorbed that we don't want to have absorbed. And then the rest gets eliminated. From start to finish. Yeah. And it's really that succinct, but it does. it is a multi-step process, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, and I see all the time with patients that entire, I mean, you could have something wrong with every step of that process because they're so intricate and separate, but all together at the same time. So yeah, absolutely. So let's go back to the microbiome. What is a microbiome? Yeah. What does a microbiome do? It's definitely a buzzword. I hear it in commercials now talking about the microbiome. Can you explain that? Yeah. So it's, they say an estimated 38, 39 trillion microbes. With a T. (laughs) With a T. Yeah. So more microbes in your gut than there are stars in the Milky Way which I always think is really fascinating. And you're more microbes than you are your own self, which is also just a little like kind of funky to think about it in that way. But it just goes to show how powerful it is and how impactful it really is because there's so much of it. It controls a lot of things. So it's a diverse group of things. And we, we want to live in harmony. Like our microbiome doesn't want to dominate all the bad stuff and we don't want the bad stuff to really dominate us. So we need this delicate harmony of things, but the microbiome itself is like fungi and protozoa and archaea and sometimes viruses, you know, in candida that sort of live happily there if as long as things are in balance. So if they're out of balance, (laughs) what what happens? (laughs) So a lot can happen. You can see the common obvious things are you can be constipated, you can have diarrhea, IBS, IBD, Crohn's, colitis, just bloating, belching, gas, things like that. But there's so many more systemic things too that I don't think many people, I think they're starting to, but Many don't really connect neurodegenerative disease, autoimmune disease, fertility, hormones, skin conditions, all of that really can be traced back to the microbiome. Which go back to neurodegenerative. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. Yep. So things like MS, Alzheimer's, dementia, even just brain fog, simply put, just, I just can't remember things very well anymore. It doesn't need to be this like fancy diagnosis, just kind of a decline in, in cognitive function too. Which is really... Common. Yeah. Very common. Right. It's in, and brain fog at a minimum, mm-hmm. since I, me primarily, I see a lot of 
females, hormones and fem- mm-hmm. women's health and brain fog is a big yeah. symptom that they come in with. I can't remember like I used to. I feel like I have to write lists when I didn't used to have to do that. Yep. Is this dementia? I'm scared of Alzheimer's. Now, obviously, right. there are a lot of reasons for brain fog, but you're saying a dysfunctional gut could be one of them. Yeah. They kind of are coining Alzheimer's now as type three diabetes. Yeah. So you go back to that insulin resistance, which goes back to the microbiome. And it's really, it's fascinating. It's a little empowering. I hope people don't see it as like, I think we thought of those diseases as debilitating. There's not much I can do, especially if it runs in the family, they felt like they were doomed, but it does give us so much insight of things we can do to be very proactive in helping prevent those neurodegenerative diseases. So that's the positive. Which I love. I think that's a great statement. Gives people hope, right? We're, right. It's part mm-hmm. of this podcast is education, but also empowerment. Yeah. Uh, it's just like you said, this is not meant to be doom and gloom. Right. It's meant to be, okay, now you're educated. Let's do something about it. But yeah, exactly. Let's get to work. So we hear all the time, speaking of which, that good health starts in the gut. Do you mm-hmm. agree with that? Do you say that to your patients? I do. I tell them that If we don't have that gut or that foundation, I like to describe it as if we don't have that functioning optimally, again, if we're not kind of going back to that external internal analogy, if we aren't regulating or don't have good control over what's coming in and out and entering into our bloodstream and impacting us then systemically, how do we think the rest is going to function? We don't, it's basically like our... If you had this mansion that you were living in and you had this nice, fancy security gate that was supposed to keep you protected from all things and everything was coming in and kind of just disrupting this perfect house, it'd be really hard to get any further than, hey, we got to stop this gate. We got to close that. Yeah. We've got to make a change here. So I see a lot where patients... And I don't fault any practitioners for what they do because obviously I don't know the whole story of, of where they were at at that time. But Patients coming in, they've been messing with hormones for seven years, or they've been working on adrenal health for four, five years. And they're like, I just, I don't know. I'm just, I I do a little better and then I regress and I feel like I get a little better and then we have to make a change. And it just, I simply ask, well, have they talked about your poop or have they done a stool study? And they're like, well, no, I've never done a stool study. I'm like, okay, well, let's start there. And it just, again, goes back to it being the foundation of whole body functioning. I did I consults for years and years and years right around hormones. I worked for the Dutch test as their mm-hmm. medical director. So hormones was the primary thing I consulted on. And it surprised me, the number of clinicians who would say, here are all their hormones. They're very dysfunctional. They have all the symptoms, all the things. Oh, by the way, their gut is a mess. What should I start with first? Mm-hmm. Should I tackle their hormones or should I tackle their gut? And obviously if budget allows, I'm like, well, we can tackle both. Right. But if not, I said, oh my gosh, go to the gut, mm-hmm. go to the gut. Because if I, I would find more, way more often than not, it, like just like you, if you address everything going on in the gut, whatever it is, a lot of times the hormones would resolve themselves. They're just reacting to the reaction right. in the gut. <laughs> exactly. That's their response to the chaos, really. And, and you say this really well, a lot of times, like if you're running from a lion, your body does not want to do things normally or function like we want it to. Running from a lion is a really bad time to poop. It's a really bad time to have balanced hormones, really bad time to get adequate sleep, really bad time to have an appropriate robust immune function or to think clearly because you're just in survival mode. And and patients are like, well, no, I have a good grip on my mental health. I feel like I'm I'm really got it figured out. And, And that's true. They might, but just because mentally you may not feel like you're running from a lion internally, you totally could be in the microbiome. Yeah. Your gut could be fighting this off all the time. And that's what's running from a lion. Plus, we also normalize stress. We do. Don't you find in our society? Yes. How many times have we been through or we've witnessed our best friend or our parents or our sister or whatever go through a super stressful situation and, and you're, as the outsider, you're like, 
how did you do that? Right. They're like, I didn't have a choice. Yeah. I didn't have a choice. I had to survive and get through. But in the moment, they might have, it's that meme of the house burning down and the cartoon animals mm-hmm. going, it's fine. I'm fine. Yeah. Everything's fine. Right. And so when you're, yeah. we were talking to patients, how's your stress? It's fine because they just have to get through the day. They just have they to do. survive. So it is fine. They're not right. in critical condition. But just like you said, the inside of them might be mm-hmm. running from a lion. It might be screaming. Right. Yeah. Like, pay attention to me. But on the exterior, you put on armor and you're like, I have to get through this day. I don't have a choice. I have a job or family or kids or whatever it is. Yeah. And I say that a lot too, that with patients, I sort of like go back to Jenga pieces. Throughout our whole life, when you look back, we start with childhood and move forward. There's our body gives us a lot of warning signs. Like I'll take me, for example, you know, I had migraines at the age of eight and they were like, oh, your dad had migraines. That's totally normal. This is just, and I was like, oh, this is really fun. (laughs) Okay. And you know, and then there was other things and it was like, constipation or bowel issues. And then I I was, there were just a few other things, you know, my hormones were out of control and, and they were like, well, let's just throw some birth control. That'll fix it. And it of course didn't. And all these other things. And you're like, okay, so these are Jenga pieces and your body's trying to say, pay attention to me, you know, with these things, mm-hmm. we label them, we tame them, we kind of send them on their way. We never address what's going on. Eventually when your body's had enough, like you're mentioning, you know, on the inside, that tower is going to crash and say, okay, you have to pay attention to me now. You need to get it together because look what's going on. And for me, that was, I actually had a really early thyroid cancer diagnosis. I was in my last year of college. And so it was like, oh, well, that was a nice <laughs> wake up call. You know, here I was interviewing at medical schools and doing all these other things. And your thyroid had other options. It was a really, yeah, you know what? But it was a really great way to learn. Like mm-hmm. I had to slow down. I didn't have a choice at that point, like you said. So we normalize stuff for so long. We might normalize, oh, I'm genetically susceptible to Alzheimer's, look at my family. Or I bleed through super tampons every hour. Like we brag about it or like it's made normal that PMS is okay and that you get to be crabby before your period and stay away from her. Or, oh, it's fine to have migraines. That's just part of life. That's stress, but it's not. Yeah. And so the normalizing is what really is a big frustration, you know, for those of us in functional medicine, I think, because we know that there's so much more to it. And when when our patients discover the root cause Mm -hmm. or causes plural, right? Mm -hmm. And they get their life back. It's fantastic as their practitioner, you and I as their practitioner to watch their transformation Mm -hmm. where they're like, oh my gosh, my migraines went away. I didn't have a migraine this month or whatever it is. You know, my rashes are going away. Mm -hmm. I, my thyroid is stabilizing. Whatever it is that my PMS is significantly down. Mm -hmm. I didn't take anyone's head off this month. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't double up on ibuprofen for the cramping or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's so true. Right. So we've talked a lot about stress and how stress can affect the microbiome. Can you go into that a little bit more? Because that will affect when we sort of move on to the next section about hormones. So how does, how does cortisol and adrenaline affect the microbiome? (laughs) All of those things. So we have, we have this resiliency built into us. So we're ideally born with this innate resilience. Now, of course, that can be impacted by the health of our mother when she was pregnant with us and then the health of her mother when she was pregnant with her because we were an egg inside our mom when she was still in utero too, which is fascinating. But so all of those things, yes, come into play. Did mom have to have antibiotics when she was born or were you, did you have to have a lot of antibiotics as a child? And so those things can kind of disrupt our microbiome, but normally we should, we are ideally born with this resilience, but what can really impact that is stress. And it can be, you know, one acute stress, maybe, you know, there was a sudden death and, and we have to go through that grieving process and then kind of recover. Again, if we're doing all the other things, right, we might see some bounce back 
pretty well, but it's all the other things that, that kind of are in the middle of the messy stuff where it's trying to be a mom or working and doing a thousand things and being a wife and whatever, functioning at your best at everything when there's only one of you, you know, and getting through the day every day, that all compounds. And what we see it do to the microbiome specifically is it drives down that secretory IgA response. You explain what that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Secretory IgA just being kind of the overall immune response of our microbiome. So kind of how I like to describe that to my patients is how big is your army? How big are they in number? How many of them are fighting for you? And we see that kind of drive down. And then we also see those individual soldiers really weaken. So I I either describe them as like a football team or an army, but if we have a large army and it starts to shrink and then our soldiers themselves within that army or those individual microbes weaken or don't have any weapons to fight with, it makes it really challenging for you to then balance anything. So stress drives those two things specifically down and pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. We can see that, we can see an, an acute pattern, but I generally see this as a really chronic long-term problem. And do you notice, and I tell this to patients too, chronic stress or chronicity, it doesn't have to be the same stress over time. It can be little stresses every day, right? Right. It's always something. There's Yes. There's always something. Yes. When you haven't seen a patient in a while and you go, oh my gosh, it's been a year. How have you been? And they're like, oh my gosh. So (laughs) a year ago, this happened. And then this happened. And then that happened. And then I went through this. And then so-and-so got sick. And then my husband lost their job. And then, and then, and then. And so everything has resolved, whatever it was. It was in, you know, thank goodness, everybody's okay now. But when you hear, when I hear those stories, I think chronic stress. I think, oh, Mm -hmm. little to moderate stresses that did resolve but it was one after the other. And we hear that. Yeah, you never got a break. You were always running. Never got a break. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's like, I talk a lot about the cortisol awakening response, mm-hmm. uh, which is the cort- your cortisol rise in the morning. Your cortisol mm-hmm. should rise in the morning to an, an appropriate level. People freak out. Shouldn't cortisol be low? No, in the morning, <laughs> you actually do want it to rise up in, 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 within the reference range. Yes. But when I ask people, how is your morning? What happens for you in the morning? Oh my gosh. When I get their test back and their cortisol is actually high, higher than I would like it, I would say, why you should be high, but why are you twice Mm -hmm. the reference range? Oh, well, that morning my dog threw up. Okay. Is that a normal morning for you? Well, maybe not my dog throwing up, but maybe my kid got sick. Maybe I got a bad text message. Maybe I was late for work. Like today, maybe it snowed and I wasn't expecting (laughs) it. Now it's icy, which is my situation. And so it's every morning there's something. And so if somebody's listening to this and they're raising their hands like, oh yeah, that's my life. Every morning, Mm -hmm. every day, it's something or every week, it's something. You're saying that definitely over time takes a toll. It does. On the microbiome. It totally does. So it starts to drive that down. And 80%, again, an estimate is 80% of our serotonin is converted in the gut. So serotonin is that feel-good kind of happy neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. And you know, our brain sends signals to the gut. I think a lot of people think our brain has this almighty power, but really brain sends signals to the gut, but our gut sends 10 times the signals to the brain. And so you're seeing there that if you're, you've constantly got all these either little fires or one major fire that's creating this inflammatory response in the microbiome, how in the world are we going to expect serotonin to do its little magical enzyme reaction to activate it and get sent to the brain and be like, I'm going to feel good amongst this craziness. It doesn't, it fits. Generally feel good when you have all that craziness going on. It's harder to feel positive. It's harder to stay optimistic and it's easy to get really down, but it all makes sense. It's all directly related. Yeah. And then on top of that, when we throw the fact that it 
affects your hormones. Yeah. Right. So now do you feel maybe down, Mm -hmm. less motivated, not as happy, but at the same time, you're like, and I'm hormonal. Right. (laughs) You know? And I don't even like myself. <laughs> so how would anyone like me? Right, exactly. And my periods are heavy and my boobs yeah. hurt. I'm PMSing. Like what the heck? Yes. So yeah. what is the hormone aspect of it? What can you talk about the estrobilome part yes. of the microbiome? Yeah. So our estrobilome is still part of the microbiome. It's still kind of in the same vicinity. It's all together, but its job is specifically to modulate and metabolize estrogens. So it has specific roles to balance those estrogen levels. Now, Ideally, they would metabolize. We'd use our estrogen and metabolize, and then we would poop it out. What can happen though is when things are imbalanced, this can really disrupt that lifetime exposure to estrogens. So, if this is not working like we want it to, we can see we have an additional estrogen load, we'll say, that contributes to kind of this long term exposure to that estrogen, which we know then can drive hormonal symptoms. So, we can see this present as Breast tenderness, like you said, sometimes breast cysts that are mass that are found on when they go in for a mammogram, if patients are doing mammograms, or you can see it as fibroids, heavy periods, cramping, large clots, infertility. And then again, this lifetime, again, when we say lifetime, you know, this exposure, it also can contribute to your increased risk of breast or ovarian cancer as well. Mm. So when women come to you and they have, let's say they have a handful of these symptoms, all of these symptoms that you just listed off, mm-hmm. it's important they don't forget about the gut. Our practitioners who are listening right. and of course go right to the ovaries. Oh, we need to check your hormones. Mm-hmm. Let's see what's going on with your ovaries. With a blood draw, by the way. With, right. With <laughs> blood. <laughs> You're saying we should really be evaluating the gut. Yes. So our body metabolizes estrogen specifically phase one, two, three. So that's how physiologically we're made. We need to address it as practitioners and patients. Phase three, two, one. So you have to start backwards. If you do not, and I could stand on a pedestal and like preach this to the world because it drives me so insane. If you do not start with step three or phase three, you're not going to get where you want to get. Like the results will not happen. They might temporarily, but you're going to be frustrated and your patients are going to be just as frustrated. And you have the best analogy of that. You can say it or I can say it, but thinking of it as a bathtub, you know, and keeping it in harmony. So I don't think mine's the same, quite the same as yours, but the, the gist of it is we have these faucets that we can adjust the water temperature. We see this, like you said, on a Dutch test, that's phase one of that estrogen breakdown. And then there's the size of the bathtub. So that's the methylation. So either it's too small, too big. We don't want a bathtub too big. We don't get to feel the warm water. We don't want it too small. Overflowing, that's phase two. But phase three is that drain. And patients all the time come to me and they're like, well, yeah, I, I poop once every seven days, but, and I've got these hormonal issues and they've been messing with these hormone issues. I'm like, no, 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 let's go back to that pooping once every seven days. Let's open that drain and get things moving. So you can see that even if you perfected that faucet or you perfected the size of the tub and everything was perfect, but your drain was plugged, you've missed the entire picture. Yeah. And I think this happens a lot more often, especially because when you, when we ask do you poop mm-hmm. patients or you have it on a piece of paper, right? Your intake form. Yeah. Do you have bowel movements? Nobody says yes until you actually ask, right. well, how often? And what are they like? <laughs> and what are they like? Yeah. Right. And what are they like? If it's your normal, it doesn't mean it's normal, but it's your mm-hmm. normal, right? So right. if you're like, well, I poop every three days, maybe, but I've always done that. That's my normal. Mm-hmm. Then you don't think anything different, right? Like, right. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I go. I'm pretty consistent every three days or Mm -hmm. every seven days. I go once a week. It's pretty consistent. Yeah. And that's where we get into trouble. That's where like you and I and other 
more in-depth practitioners, functional practitioners are going to ask these questions because mm-hmm. you're also coming in for your PMS, your breast tenderness, your fibroids, your heavy periods or whatever. Right. This whole time, which I love, is it's definitely related. It's related mm-hmm. to the gut and how you poop mm-hmm. dictates like kind of how you get your estrogen out. Yeah, it does. <laughs> if we want your estrogen out. <laughs> yes, we need it to get out. We got more to use. But and I just it makes me so sad too. I'm sure you've seen this, but the amount of patients that have struggled with fertility issues for so long. Mm. And like, it's such a heartbreak to be on that journey with them because talk about stress and wiped out and emotional distress and traumas. It is painstaking for these couples. And I have yet to find one that I've seen that said that we that had normal bowel function or that that was ever assessed. Yeah, And we assess this and we'll talk about kind of ways, but that happens, their hormones balance And they're like, oh my gosh, I have all this cervical mucus or I can tell when I'm ovulating or all of these things that have not happened in years of trying to manipulate their hormones. And and so even in those cases, again, you have to start with that third step, that phase three, and then work backwards. Are there other hormones that are affected mm-hmm. by the microbiome? I mean, we're, estrogen's a big one. There's a lot of re- right. uh, research and literature on this. But are there other hormones, microbiome effects? Yeah, there are. So I mentioned serotonin. So your neurotransmitters are very much impacted. But then we think about progesterone, Mm -hmm. the androgens, DHEA, testosterone. All of those are very much, well, and then cortisol, of course, we mentioned, but very much impacted by our microbiome. And again, this is all this nice, big, like upstream thing. So we start with one hormone, we can look upstream and find the other. So really, essentially, they're really all impacted in some way or another, um, just depending on how high up you want to go and talk about it. But yeah. yeah, most directly, we can see a lot of methylation, sulfation, those things take place in the gut with the liver involvement. And so every hormone's impacted by that in some way. Yeah, which I wish would get preached about a lot, a whole lot more. You know, I wish mm-hmm. we learned this stuff as the basics and I know middle school or high school health, just basic health of right. like, hey, Your stomach stuff, your intestine mm-hmm. stuff, or your tummy stuff, depending how old you are, right. can really will play a big role in your mood mm-hmm. or your hormones or your mm-hmm. brain. So yeah. let's keep that in mind as you get older and yes. go through life and what you choose to put in at the end of your fork or the end of yep. your spoon. And yeah, or on your skin. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about, or on your, right, exactly. All those things. Yeah. Exactly. So testing. Yeah. What do we do? How do we test the microbiome? Can we? So you poop in a tray. <laughs> <Basically>. <laughs> I always say poop in a cup for science. <laughs> yes, that's right. So patients, it's the funniest thing. I'll, we'll talk about the kid or we'll have it for them in the office and, and go through it, how to use it. And they'll be like, do I, I always see this like, look, I'm like, no, you don't have to bring it back to me. Like you, <laughs> it comes with an envelope. You just drop it to the UPS box or FedEx and, and they'll take care of it. But Yeah. So it's something that patients can do very easily at home. There's a large variety of companies and different tests and Rupa supports all of those, which is great. They're very similar in a lot of ways. So a lot of them are similar. You can, if you are a practitioner and you're looking for specific markers, some are always included with tests. Some are not, they're considered add-ons. So that's one thing to consider, but generally they're all about the same and you poop in a cup and send it off. And then the lab analyzes it and you get this really nice report back that really gives guided direction on how we need to address what's going on. Give me an idea or give the listeners an idea of like what would come back on a report. So mm-hmm. they poop in a cup, they scoop it into the little vial, they FedEx it off. Mm-hmm. What are they looking for? Yeah. So when it comes back, because some of the first things I look like to look at is, are your normal microbes in balance? Mm. So are they large in number, right? So we talked about that size. And are they strong individually? This is kind of when I talk about a football team, they break down some of the individual most prominent organisms 
And if the quarterback's wiped out, it's pretty hard to win a game, right? Like, good luck if you're not making any butyrate because fake calbacterium is completely zilch. It's going to be really challenging to play that game. So we can look at kind of individually how the microbes are performing. You can see some patterns there as far as, oh, these are more overgrown. We really suspect that low stomach acid is an issue, plus or minus H. pylori. And then kind of the team as a whole, how it's functioning, kind of the offense and the defense. We see the gram negatives and the gram positives, and we want that in a nice balance. So the phylas, the predominant phylas to be balanced. And then we look at the opportunistic organisms too. What's growing in there? That's not supposed to be, right? (laughs) We don't want that there. (laughs) And how much of it? How much Mm -hmm. of it is there? So methane bacteria or the methanobacteriaceae family is a big one that we see that drives constipation. So we make sure that that is optimal or can kind of give some hints if there's SIBO going on in the small intestine. So we look at those guys and and who all is kind of like, again, how's your team? Are they a little peewee football team playing like the Kansas City Chiefs? Or do we have like a little more of a balance here? And so patients really are like, oh, I get it. And I see this now and I see this on paper and this makes so much more sense. But then we move on to some of the intestinal like markers as far as how your overall intestinal health is functioning. So do you have adequate stomach acid levels? Is there H. pylori present? Are you breaking fats down? Yeah. Can you explain what H. pylori is? Yeah. So H. pylori is a bacterium in the, in the stomach. So this can really impact stomach acid levels. I can't tell you how many people come in on a PPI or a reflux med and they've been on it for 15 years and they still have reflux, but they still take it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and they've either been scoped or they've been biopsied and they're like, oh no, I don't have H. pylori. Testing is kind of a big one for that. You really need to, I think, do a stool study to really adequately assess if there is H. pylori present. It's so patchy. Mm -hmm. It hides in biofilms. Biofilms are this nice protective bubble, per se, that protects these organisms so they can't be warded off with traditional antibiotics. You know, this is where we see antibiotic resistance. In fact, biofilms require 5,000 times the antibiotic to open them up. Yikes. Like, I know. Yeah. So we've got to get creative. And so in functional medicine, we're so, we have options. Biocide being one that does open the biofilms, there's other ways to do that too, but you have to address that biofilm formation. So with H. pylori, we see that a lot. The biofilm is a problem. And then H. pylori kind of robs you of that stomach acid. So it doesn't leave you with the appropriate stomach acid to break your foods down, which is a really critical step of the stomach's job in this whole GI tract specifically with proteins. So yes, we start to break proteins down first in our mouth, but that stomach acid is really necessary to break those down further and to get it ready for our gallbladder and our pancreas to do their job. When we don't have adequate stomach acid levels, it can look like you have too much. So that's kind of the tricky piece here. Just because you have reflux, it doesn't mean there's too much acid. It very well could be you have too little stomach acid. And I'd argue that most people probably do have too little stomach acid. Again, chronic stress can cause these issues taking PPIs for a really long time. Proton pump inhibitors. <laughs> yes, yeah, proton pump inhibitors. <laughs> so your reflux meds. And then just not chewing our food appropriately, being in a hurry, constantly eating on the go or doing too much at once, not activating our parasympathetic nervous system to rest and digest. So we see this create, again, You know, this is kind of the top of the GI tract. And so if that's off, we can really see it cause downstream effects. Imagine you don't have enough stomach acid and those proteins now are not broken down. And your pancreas is like, what the heck? What, <laughs> do your job, stomach. Like, I can't handle this much food. Sure, I'm pumping out enzymes, but like, this is too much. I can't handle it. And so now we have chunks of food versus small pieces moving into that small intestine. And the bad guys are the microbes, the opportunistic microbes there are like, this is like the best. This is an all you can eat buffet. We're going to have a heyday. 
we're going to eat, eat, eat on all this undigested food. And then we're going to release a bunch of gas and you're going to feel terrible. (laughs) So it just, you can see how it kind of creates this whole downstream problem. So H. pylori can really wreak havoc on that entire system. And then, you know, we want to look at, again, like I mentioned, is our bile acid production sufficient? So is the gallbladder doing what we want it to? If you don't have a gallbladder, you really need to be paying attention to this. And from a hormone standpoint, you know, fats are so critical for optimal hormone functioning. You know, they're the backbone of that hormone production. So that's a big piece. We look at pancreatic output and then how kind of a zonulin marker you can add on or, or it's standard to see how much or little leaky gut is going on if you suspect that in your patient. So you get a really nice clear picture if gluten is an issue. So how your immune system is or isn't influenced by gluten is often on there. So you get a nice big picture of what's going on on a stool study. There's a company, back when I was seeing patients, there was a company that if they found critter, right? A parasite, a worm or something, they mm-hmm. would take a picture. So you'd be flipping through the report and then you were like, oh, look at that. Oh, it's a selfie. <laughs> I have yet to see worms. And I swore being in an agricultural area, I'd be like influx of worms. I see parasites all the time, which fine, but worms are just a little more exciting. I don't want anyone to have worms. But... Right, right. But from a, from a nerdy, <laughs> from a clinical standpoint, from a nerdy, yes, clinical yeah. standpoint, I always got excited when the pictures showed up of like, yeah. look what you have. <laughs> yeah. It's a little traumatizing for that poor patient. It is definitely. Yeah. Right. But I always found it really fun. fascinating. Yes. It's also motivating. It My motivating. patients were like, that's inside of me. Yeah. That has to go. Yep. Like it does have to go. Yes. yes. We're, <laughs> we're going to get rid of it. <laughs> What about markers for the estrobilome? What are you looking for that when you're working with somebody, their gut and their estrogen? So a lot of the same things, very much of what I address, those are all very important. An additional marker that we look at is something called beta-glucuronidase. Beta-glucuronidase is sort of like the bad guy in the liver. He comes in and our liver has a major role. And I'd argue that it's one of our most important, if not important organs that we have, because it just, it doesn't get enough attention for liver, but these beta-glucuronidase, which can be made by opportunistic bacteria. So the bad guys make more of this. Beta-glucuronidase makes more of a hospitable environment for the opportunistic guys. So they, they really play on each other. But beta-glucuronidase, if your liver, let's say all the things it has to break down. So whether it's medications or hormones or toxic exposures or alcohol or things like that, your liver has to break that down. The way it does that is it binds, to, let's say we'll take an estrogen since that's kind of our topic, but It takes an estrogen that your body has used. This is phase two of estrogen breakdown and it binds it to something called glucuronic acid. So it's basically like a little flag that says, hey, I've done my job. Now you can go be pooped out. And that's great when it's working fine, but beta-glucuronidase is the bad guy that comes in and he like cuts that flag off and he's like, nope, not today. And he sends that estrogen back into circulation. So now you have these used estrogens that really can't do much for you, but they're back in circulation. They're contributing to your overall estrogen load. And now you're going to see things such as heavy periods, PMS, breast tenderness, clotting, infertility, migraines, you know, headaches, with mm-hmm. periods, all of those things. So beta-glucuronidase is probably the biggest player, I would say, when it comes to hormones in the microbiome. And it can be real eye-opening. I mean, sometimes oh I've seen some patients whose beta-glucuronidase is really above the reference mm-hmm. range and mm-hmm. they've been fighting so to speak, with their hormones for years, yeah. tried so many things. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah. these little beta-glucuronidase scissors have been cutting off your flags yes. for years and years and years and needed to go to the gut. Yeah. And perfect example, I had a patient, she was like 40 years old, had a breast cancer at 38, never had children, wasn't in the family. It was kind of one of those oddball 
breast cancers, she did fine and then was on tamoxifen, which if you're not familiar, tamoxifen is intentionally lowering those estrogens or eliminating estrogen production. And it was funny, her when she first came to see me, she was like, yeah, my oncologist is always so impressed. He does my blood work and he's like, you're not in menopause yet. Things look so good. And I'm like, I'm not really sure that's appropriate. And so anyway, they... I said, well, let's take a look at your stool study. So we did a stool study, her beta-glucuronidase level. This was on a GI map. So if you understand the reference range, it was like 6,000. Wow. Really? Which is crazy high. Really high. Crazy high. You know, I like to see it around 1,000 for reference. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, let's address this. So we addressed her microbiome. We cleared things out. And quite frankly, I actually, the oncologist was pretty impressed. And I sent him some research kind of explaining why she potentially had the breast cancer in the first place, you know, she had lived her whole life with this hormonal imbalance. And so we corrected that. And she goes back for her follow-up a few months later with her oncologist. And he was like, Oh, you're in full-blown menopause now. (laughs) And I was like, yes, you are. (laughs) So you can see that her accumulation of those estrogens in serum, which they were testing was really contributing to kind of her overall estrogen load and creating creating problems. So it was just fascinating how much of a difference that was like a three month span. So it's, it didn't take too much time to see that kind of flop the other direction, but yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh, wow. But we see it, we're testing and looking for it. So it's not that uncommon to us, but it definitely, it can be very mind blowing too. Yeah. The patient was like, Oh, great. (laughs) No, I thought I was doing so good. I'm like, well, it's okay. We can work on this. (laughs) Right. Thankfully. Yes. There's still options. What about probiotics? That's a really, you know, probiotics and prebiotics. There's a lot. There's so much around probiotics. There are so many probiotic companies out there. Yeah. Like I said, now, of course, there are prebiotic companies. Can Mm -hmm. you just touch on this as we're kind of coming to the end? Because I know people are going to go, Yes. is my probiotic good? Should I stop (laughs) taking it? Should I start one? (laughs) Yes. All good questions, which are fair. But to think about it, you know, when we talk about those good guys or again, your army or your team to feed them or to bulken them up or to strengthen them, we need to give them prebiotics. So one of the big things of a disrupted microbiome is our standard American diet, right? The SAD diet. And we're low in fibers, we're low in diversity, we're low in different colors of foods, things like that. So increasing that diversity or adding prebiotics to your regimen, can they, prebiotics are what feed those microbes. So they are the fibers that kind of feed these guys so that the microbiome can then go do its thing and make postbiotics. So postbiotics are the short chain fatty acids that are actually doing their job in the microbiome. Which is what we want. We want those. Yes, which is what we want. Probiotics themselves, I like to call substitute teachers. They kind of come in, which are great. We all love a good sub, right? That's a good day at school. But they're like, they come in, they do the job and then they leave. They don't have to deal with like the mess that happened while they were there. So they kind of keep things stabilized, but they don't really fix it or like hurt it. They just kind of keep things where it's at, which is great. That's better than getting worse. But we really kind of need to take it a step further and address some things. Do you have favorite foods that are prebiotics that you tell your patients to eat? So I like artichokes. I like carrots, the peels on the carrots. That's your big thing, which people (laughs) know, don't peel your carrots, eat the fibers on the carrots. Mm -hmm. And then even like quinoa and rice and potatoes, I think they get a bad rap because they're carbohydrates, but really cooked in cold rice or cooked in cold potatoes really have an increased abundance of these specific prebiotics. So, and these fibers. Can you actually explain what that means to be like cold potatoes? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So like if you made a potato salad, so you cook your potatoes, they're hot. You let them cool down, you refrigerate them, and then you eat them. Eat them cold. So they have to have, and same with rice. So 
like one of my favorite things I like to do is use like rice or orzo or quinoa or different things like cook it, let it cool, turn it, put a bunch of chopped veggies in it, throw like a olive oil marinade or balsamic on it and create kind of like pasta salad, but using all of these good fibers. So letting it cool enhances their prebiotic activity. So that's kind of a fun thing. So more potato salad, not that (laughs) I'm not saying that's healthy in itself, but you know, you get the idea, right? Have a few cold potatoes. Yes. And then, you know, talking about color, I tell patients all the time, increase the diversity on your plate. So I've said this before that if we run out of bananas and broccoli, we often go to the store and just get more bananas and broccoli, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is not a bad thing, but we're not creating that diversity. Mm -hmm. Bananas have different fibers than carrots, than do blueberries, than do artichokes, than do broccoli and cauliflower. And so creating that diversity and getting yourself a variety is a really great way to impact your microbiome in a positive way. I love that. And what about, and jicama? Yes, I love jicama. Right? Not a lot of people. Jicama. Yeah. I was at a conference in Mexico and they had veggie trays out, carrots, mm-hmm. celery, and jicama. And I was the only one eating the jicama. Nobody wanted to eat the jicama. Oh, I love jicama. I was told later in the area that we were in, jicama is not actually very common, but the hotel happened to have it. Oh. And so I do a lecture on estrogen yeah. and I talk about prebiotics and I pointed out to the, on the outside of the conference rooms, they had tables set up and that's where all the snacks were. And I said, the white vegetable is called jicama and has prebiotics. Sure enough, at the next break, everybody ate all the jicama. <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> the parsnips are another yes. big one. We parsnips. love parsnips. Those are yes. so good. They yes. like are like French fries if you roast them. They're so yummy. Yes. So yeah, a lot of those root vegetables are mm-hmm. really great for prebiotics. Yeah. Inulin. Cruciferous are super important as well for a lot of reasons. So I love that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been enlightening, amazing. You know, I love talking about the estrobilome. You know, I love talking about the microbiome, especially with you. So as we wrap up, given that this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast, and I am definitely all about that sort of practical and tactical, when it comes to our gut and our hormones, like what are maybe two or three things you would like to leave the listeners with that they can do or be aware of on improving their gut health? And of course, downstream affecting their estrogen. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we'll start with, well, obviously what we just talked about. So increasing diversity of your foods. It's a really Mm -hmm. easy and relatively inexpensive way. You don't need to go and buy 30 new fruits and vegetables that you haven't tried. Just switch it up each week, add a couple new ones into your diet and kind of your weekly regimen and switch it up and see what happens. That's one, but we didn't touch on xenoestrogens much, but xenoestrogens are another thing that modulate our circulating estrogens as well. So they mimic an estrogen essentially. And we see these in like lotions and hair products and makeup mm-hmm. and perfumes and cleaning supplies and environmental toxicants and pesticides and herbicides. So cleaning those things makes a huge difference on your overall health one and hormones specifically. But, and again, don't do this overnight. Like it's really overwhelming. I'll have friends that are like, oh my gosh, you do this and this and this and this and this. I'm like, yeah, but I've done that over time. Like I didn't just go out and throw my makeup all away and get brand new that was clean or same with cleaning products, pots and pans, all of those things. So those things take time, but do those in incremental steps. So if something runs out, replace it with a more clean version of that. And there's lots of great accounts out there that that have healthy swaps or favorite brands or of different things. So that's another one. And then optimizing sleep. So our circadian rhythm is so important for sleep, hormonal health, gut microbiome health, you know, our gut, our, when we're sleeping, our gut kind of heals around 10, 11 p.m. So there's, I don't think people realize that when we sleep, there's specific things that happen. And it's this nice, succinct order. 
And when we go to bed at midnight, but we still get seven hours of sleep, we've missed everything from that 10 to midnight window. That healing didn't really take place. It's not like, oh, we're going to squeeze that in later. It can't. There's other big things that have to happen. Immune system starts to ramp up. Cholesterol and fat digestion and breakdown all happen. So we really have to get... You know, It's so important if you can get to sleep before 10 p.m., like by 10 p.m. It's huge for hormonal health, for gut health, a lot of those things. I had a patient the other day, we talked about this and she's like, oh... That's probably why when I was like making myself go to bed at 9.30, I felt so good instead of like 12.30. And I was like, yes, that's it. Let's work on that. (laughs) So, and then she was one of those too, that when she would wake up in the morning, she's like, I hit snooze six times and then I'm rushed and I'm late for work. So when her cortisol awakening response came back last week, it was one of those that was like double Mm. where we wanted it to be. And her every day was very similar. It was always stress and it was the same. It's hitting snooze several times, feeling rushed which then impacted when she took her thyroid medication. And then that didn't leave her enough time to eat and do other thing else. So she just didn't wait the hour. You know, it all just kind of compounded. So for her, we kept it. Yes, we have our hormone results back and we're going to make some tweaks, but we're really focusing on that circadian rhythm and getting her to bed when she wants to go to bed, when her body's like falling asleep in a chair at 8.30. I said, walk to your room and fall asleep in your bed at 8.30. It's okay. (laughs) She's like, my husband will think I'm so lame. I said, I don't care. It's not going to be forever. Eventually we'll get you back to a, you know, a 9.30 normal bedtime, but your body needs you to sleep and there's a lot it needs to do. So that's an easy one too. Stop the scrolling, stop the blue light, the TVs, the electronics, at least a half an hour. I, I would recommend longer for sure, but that's a good start um, before bed. And then kind of scale back that bedtime. I'd so much rather you be early to bed, early to rise than someone who says, oh, I'm a night owl and I'm not a morning person. We're going to have a lot of other of other issues that we have to address. So sleep and food, and then cleaning up your environment, I would say are some really easy, big ones that patients or listeners can do. I love that. I love how practical and tactical that is because all of that's very doable and mm-hmm. on it, quite honestly, doesn't cost a lot of money. Right. If any, right. Go to bed yeah. an hour earlier, get yep. off your screen. None of that costs money. So right. thank you. Thank yes. you so much, Carrie. Tell everyone where they can find you on social media or in Nebraska. Yeah, right. Well, you could come visit us, but I don't really know if you want to. If you're somewhere warm, stay there. We are Nebraska Functional Medicine is my clinic. So our new website just launched and then we have a new brand kind of ambassador that's hopefully going to be getting you more tactical, practical things on our social media accounts that are easy to do. And you do telehealth, correct? We do. Yeah, we see patients yep. virtually. So there's a couple of us practitioners and we do see patients virtually. And then... Biosiden has great resources too. So if you're wanting like, well, I want to take this a step further and I want to clear some stuff out, that's an option as well. But yeah, I think all of our, yeah, all the social media handles are just NE Functional Medicine. So NE for Nebraska. That's Nebraska right. Functional yes. Medicine. And we will link all that <laughs> below in the show notes. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the Root Cause Medicine podcast. I really appreciate it. And I think the listeners learned a ton. Thank you. Yes, I was so happy to be on here. This was so fun. So thank you. my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. If you love today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.